than I am. I you've mastered, um, you know, talking to like your phone or a camera or whatever, like really beautifully. And I can't as I fumble through this. It's so funny you say that because I was today editing a video, you know, making my propaganda and I just watch myself back and I just laugh at myself, which you have to because yeah. I just cringe watching myself back. It's, it's a it's a whole fucking production. Tokyo tonight. Yeah, it's so funny you say, like, you know, being the kind of person who does this stuff. Mm -hmm. I really don't think this is natural. Like, I don't think anybody's a natural at being a person who has an audience. I don't right. think human beings were meant to have this. And mm -hmm. the way I think about, you know, using TikTok is it's organizing. So mm. when we all had to go inside because of the pandemic, uh, we couldn't be organizing in person. We couldn't have events like we we're having on the Sanders campaign. And I'd been organizing for so long that I was just feeling like feeling a void that needed to be filled. Mm -hmm. And I was on TikTok a lot. I was like, this <laughs> app is so fun. Like I you love are. little skits. And I was like, <laughs> I could make one of those. Uh, and I was like, I'll make it about like political education. I'll mm -hmm. use TikTok to organize, to spread an organizing message and maybe reach some people, you know, I can't knock doors, can't make phone calls, can't canvas in the streets. And then like the first TikTok I posted got 100,000 views. And I was like, this shit is easy. <laughs> it is not easy. Trust no. me, not at all. Yeah. But it's the same thing. Like when you start organizing, you're not like, I'm so excited to knock this stranger's door and try and change their worldview. That's terrifying. Yeah. Even for me, who was like a bartender for many years before that. Nice. And it's the same thing. You just kind of are like, well, I have to do it to make this thing I want to do. I have to knock this person's door to have the conversation I want to have. And you just, because you want it so bad, you overcome that fear. You're like, this is important. I've got to do it. Yeah. The other thing too is like, you were right about the 100,000 like views and shit. Cause it is like a slot machine where the first time you join, they want you to keep posting, keep coming back. So like, here's a million views. And you're like, fuck yeah, that's right. And then like, it just tapers off after that. And you're like chasing it ever since. Yeah, I've heard that before as well. Uh, I feel super lucky that people have decided to stick around on my page. Yeah, But yeah, it's not like I need to be heard. It's more like the planet is dying. Our mm -hmm. politics is broken. We're living in a failed state. People are hungry every day. People are dying. People are living in cages because of the U.S. industrial or prison industrial complex. Like it's just necessary that people wake up to what's going on so that yeah. we can all stand together and change it before it's too late. Mm -hmm. Because that, you know, you talked about the TED Talk earlier. I thought it was very important to include in there what has happened in every single other country where economic inequality has gotten this bad. There's been a war, a terribly violent war. And I put up behind me, like, here are all of the places. And we're in Brown University, right? So all of the elites in the audience at their TED conference are, like, gripping their chairs. And when the camera, like, pans to the audience, you can see people just, like, 
Like, what the fuck is happening? Right. Uh, but yeah, I feel like that's where we're at. It's of absolute urgency. Like, we've got to do everything we can. Unfortunately, that means being entertaining on TikTok. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's weird to have to get your message out that way. And like, yeah. I'm sure you get a ton of pushback. But it's, is it, is it like, I don't know. Do you feel like you're gaining more traction with people who are kind of like minded and maybe teach like, cause how do you gauge that? Mm -hmm. How do you gauge what you're teaching people versus just the lunatics that are on there to hate because they want to do that kind of stuff. And then the people who genuinely disagree with you, do you feel like you're actually making some headway there? Yeah. So I'm super careful about the way I communicate. I, because I'm not partisan, uh, mm -hmm. I don't identify as a Democrat or Republican. And in fact, hate both parties that puts me in an interesting position where because I'm not using partisan language, uh, I can kind of reach people that are usually conservative. So I'll get messages like, hey, I'm a small business owner. I'm pretty conservative, but I watched your TED talk and I've changed the way I structure employment at my business wow. and how much I pay my employees. So when I get messages like that and when I get messages from people who say, you know, I agree with you. Like I'm on your side already, but the way you explain things is really useful to me because my family's conservative. And when I show them your TikToks, they're starting to get it. And so stuff like that, two mm. people even would yeah. be worth it, worth every minute. Uh, but I've gotten a bunch of messages like that. And that keeps me going. You really don't, you really do a good job of like not declaring one side or the other deplorables. Uh, scumbag, you know what I mean? Or anything like yeah. that, you know, and it's, and it's nice to have that messaging out there. Yeah, that, that's huge. I mean, there, I get a lot of like, you're wearing a, a cowboy hat and that's your Republican. And I'm like, mm -hmm. what are you talking about? Right. Cowboys were outlaws. And I just replied back because I can't help myself sometimes. I'm like, have you seen Brokeback Mountain? <laughs> like, I just, sometimes it's like, you have to say something kind of humorous to, yeah. you know, quell the fire or like or any John Wayne film ever <laughs> right but more often than not I just like lean into my training as an organizer where you will learn how to just like in one sentence or two sentences completely diffuse someone and right. so I forget what it was it happened recently where someone replied back to something I posted on Twitter where I said if you've worked for an organizing nonprofit and corporate money came in and started funding your nonprofit and it changed the direction of your work in a way you didn't like, mm -hmm. uh, in a way that would benefit the corporation, DM me. Someone replies back and they're like, you're asking people to do your job for you as a journalist. And it's like, oh here God. we go. And yeah. so I just reply back and I'm like, hey, man, like I've already talked to a few people where this has happened to them, but I suspect the problem is much larger. And social media is a really good tool for connecting people. So our work can be more impactful. And he just replies back. He's like, you know, you're right. I'm sorry. I was just <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. You're just like honest. And you're like, hey, man, this is what it is. Like, yeah, it, it works. I was I was complaining about something the other day and literally somebody was like, um, Somebody just called me a boomer, which is hilarious because I was like, well, I'm like, well, first of all, I'm a I'm technically a millennial, even though I hate to it. I was like, I was like, and, and third of all, I'm like, I understand you're feeling toward it. If you really feel like discussing it further, I'd love to talk to you. You know, I appreciate your point of view or whatever. And they were like, they didn't know what they were like, fuck you, guy. Like, why are you being nice about it? Like, I did like they wanted to start a fight, but I was just like, I don't care. I don't know what to, I don't know what you want from me here.
boomer is such a funny insult for someone who's so not stupid. a boomer i was not ready for that i took a right this i was like away. what the <laughs> fuck are you talking about the, what i point to with this i'll never forget it so before i went back to organizing mm -hmm. i was in grad school working with people who just like don't get it you know they think we can uh fix the world with some really convincing randomized control trials that show our elected officials that this policy will do x y and z right uh like really terrible programs like one policy lab i was working in it was the road to college but rhode island so hr or r-h-o-d-e very clever yeah. and it was giving students who were low income based on qualification for free and reduced lunch who performed well on the psat 10 had to be in like the top 25 percentile they mm -hmm. would get gift cards to walmart and dunkin donuts and such for completing college readiness prep so sat prep uh picking their top 10 favorite schools and it's like this is not the barrier to low-income students going to college. Right. Like, you might show that some more kids go to college because you've paid them to spend time on it. The problem is money, like, yeah. very clearly. And I was just in this institution, like, I don't fit in here. Um, <laughs> but those are the people I'm around. So I meet this cognitive neuroscientist, Steve Sloman. And he's wow. a cool guy, very mm -hmm. cool guy. And I was like... I like what he's saying. He gives this speech because we're talking about how to come across party lines. What's driving the divide in America? Why can't we just make good policy? Why is everything in gridlock? Right. And so he did this amazing study where he asked people, Congress has analyzed this policy and they understand it fully. How well do you understand it? And then they rated their understanding. They ask the same question a different way. You know, Congress has analyzed this policy. They don't understand it yet. How well do you understand it? And when Congress fully understood the policy, people rated their own understanding much higher. And there's this knowledge illusion we have because we're still tribal beings. We're social and tribal beings. We rely on other people's knowledge to survive. It's how human beings became the dominant species on the planet. Adam Smith wrote about that years and years before Darwin theorized about evolution. And that's crazy also that Adam Smith would say that, but Steve Sloman proved this in many other ways. Like, you know, do you understand how a bicycle works? And they would have to draw a bicycle and, you know, right. the chain wouldn't be connected to the wheels. And so they demonstrated <laughs> a lack of knowledge as well. Right. And when they did that, they realized, you know, I really thought I understood this better than I do because I know someone who can fix the bike. Mm -hmm. And so we assume other people's knowledge is our own. And this translates to politics in an interesting way where people we consider to be in our tribe, people we trust, when they take a stance on an issue, we assume we have the same stance, even though we've never looked into the issue. Right. So if we agree on one issue, we're really susceptible to agreeing with someone else on that issue without ever having looking looked into it. And so, you know, Steve's suggestion is when you talk to people, have them explain it. Just say, like, can you explain why that is your stance on this issue? Uh, and you can slowly help them get to a place where they make a decision with the evidence in their everyday lives and they can come around to your side. I think most people would be on our side, but they're just I a little confused right now. I agree. What do you do though? Like, I think over time that's, you're definitely right. I think that you can, I think the more you talk to somebody who's like that, but what do you do in those instances when you feel like 
you know, let's say you are giving a um, like something like a TED talk or doing a Q&A or whatever it is at the end of the day. And you only know you only have a small window to maybe I mean, obviously, you might not sway them within that window. But are there key points that you try to hit? Like after you've asked them that question, maybe they don't understand it that well, because there is that cognitive dissonance that people have where they're like, I don't like the way I'm feeling, even though they know what you said might be true, but it's contrary to what they they have believed their whole life. Right. Ted Talk was a beast. That would, That's totally different than how I handle organizing conversations. Because okay. uh, that's like months of like, how do I explain this in a way that people will receive? So it's got to be very complicated things and accessible language, just mm -hmm. like pages and pages of concepts and theory distilled into a 13-minute talk. But I right. just made sure I wasn't using language that was alienating. That was the key thing. Don't use language that's been claimed by one or the other political side in the country try to define everything you're talking about and mm -hmm. really tell the story from the perspective that most people will understand it. So most people don't study economics. They understand the economy from the perspective of being a worker. Right. And so that's how I had to tell the story. And of course, you know, there are people who came up to me afterwards and they were like, uh, we get it. You know, you read Marx one time. And it's like, fuck off. Jesus Christ. <laughs> like most people will never touch <laughs> Marx. Like we've, We've got to really make sure that we're communicating with people a vision for a better world without getting caught up in the traditional titles and, mm. and all of that nonsense. Um, and you're in Brown University, first of all. Like, yeah. you're very privileged to have had access to read stuff like this. Anyhow, right. so that's that's what you've got to do for the TED Talk. But uh, separately, conversations with people, the way I go about it is you start with, like, tell me where you grew up. What did your mom and dad do? That's mm. always my first question in any organizing conversation, one-on-one -on -one style. Um, and you get them to share a little bit. And if they're not forthcoming, you have to overshare. Uh, you have to say like, you know, growing up was, was pretty hard. My parents did the best they could. You know, my dad's a carpenter, my mom's a bookkeeper, but you know, things were hard in this country. They work hard every day and like, we're still not doing well. And I remember when my mom said I should go to trade school instead of college, she told me when I was sitting in the back seat of her SUV. And I think she did that because she didn't have to look me in the eyes for the conversation to uh -huh. say, like, we can't afford to go to school. And it's right. like, I just feel like we can do so much better as a country. Like, what do you think about that? You'll yeah. get people to share so much with that framing. Nice. And if, if they get combative, your biggest strategy is to affirm them, actually. So like I'll ha I had this one guy, this is a conversation I'll never forget. Uh, I knocked the door and he's like, you know, I see you work for the Bernie Sanders campaign. I'm going to tell you right now, I think immigrants should be shot as soon as they cross the border. Holy shit. Most people would walk away. Right. right. Uh, and they wouldn't be wrong to walk away. I get it. Uh, but I had time <laughs> and patience. <laughs> and so I just said, you know, I don't agree with every politician on every issue but my parents are getting really old and I'm really worried about social security and Bernie's the only politician with like a robust plan to actually improve our access to social security. Like, is there something you're really thinking about when you're thinking about voting this time around? And he nearly started crying. This grown man who was all tough, like we wow. should shoot immigrants. He really was on the verge of tears and touches the side of his crumbling house where the shingles are falling off. And he's like, 
yeah, my house is falling apart. Social security isn't enough. My wife had to move away to work on a chicken farm and sell eggs so we won't lose this house. Holy shit. And he ended up committing to caucus for Bernie. Wow. So you really can't write anybody off. But the the first thing I did is I, I didn't affirm him in the way of like, I agree with you because I don't. Right. But I affirmed that, you know, I don't agree with every politician on every issue. Uh, I also said something along the lines of, like, I get that many people are concerned about jobs and, and immigrants taking jobs. Like, it's scary to think that we don't have access to jobs like we used to and good paying jobs. So it's like, I'm not saying immigrants are the problem. I'm saying I get your concern about jobs. Sure. And so, you know, you're kind of affirming in that way and redirecting to a question towards them. You're, you're sort of answering. So it's like affirm, answer, redirect is like the acronym that we use as organizers and you know if you implement it in that way you can change people's minds is there anything in particular that you do to stay um i don't say just resilient but basically i mean because i think about the same thing all the time like as long as bernie's been doing this kind of stuff uh i don't know how he doesn't just break um and i know you've been doing it obviously a lot less than bernie's been doing it but i mean you're still in that doing it do you do anything to kind of keep yourself going on the days that feel particularly shitty or are you just like, fuck it, just going to go to sleep, wake up, do the same thing the next day? Because I don't know how he does it, to be honest. Like, it's it seems like, you know, with defeat, sometimes it would be exhausting to do it. And the only thing I can come up with is that he just cares. Yeah, that's that's really what it is. I can't ignore it. If mm -hmm. I'm not working towards changing it, I'm just thinking about it. I'm up late thinking, right. thinking, thinking. And what's the point of that if you're not going to turn it into action, you know, it's just in me. It's, I can't change it. Can't turn it off. Some days I wish I could. Some days I'm like, damn, like, why can't I be like, you know, I'll see my neighbors out walking their dog and they're perfectly happy. And they have like the American dream family. And it's like, I wish I could just do that. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> seems so nice. But uh, oh most of the time I'm incredibly grateful for the work I do. It's so rewarding. And just like the way you know, you interact with people when you're building solidarity and movement building is like literally the best thing in the world. And I just call my parents a lot because everyone around me, you know, when you grow up working class in America, you're reminded of why you're in the fight mm -hmm. every damn day. There's always something, you know, I've got a friend uh, in jail about to be deported. We're trying to sort that out. You know, I've got cousins wow. in rehab who have been doing heroin since they were 12. Like, you know, I've got my dad with a ton of medical debt and my parents are getting old and they're figuring out retiring. It's like there's so many things where people you love are just like beaten down by this mm -hmm. system. And that fuels my fire every day. That's like enough yeah. to go until we win this thing. Um, so, yeah, it's it's really just caring. But you do have to take care of yourself, I've realized. Uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, I've, I've done the thing where it's like I ignore eating well and sleeping and all that stuff. And it's like you actually do have to sleep some hours you know <laughs> you're not fucking kidding i uh yeah. i'm like i do the same shit where i'm just like constantly i mean we're doing obviously you're it's kind of funny i don't even want to compare it like i'm just a comic and i do this occasionally or whatever and like but i know you're actually doing real work and the more you talk about the real work you're doing i'm like god i'm a piece of shit uh, I'm like i'm like oh i should really probably go knock on some doors i don't have anything to say right now but i should do it um no comedy is so important it's pretty important yeah it's it's i can yeah it's all right 
Uh, <laughs> it's not too bad. Um, makes me happy. Um, but yeah, I mean, it can be used as a, as a pretty decent tool. I'm actually, one of my friends is actually working on a nonprofit right now where she's trying to get, um, cause she, um, uh, God, I, for the life of me, I'm such a shitty friend. I cannot remember what she called it. Um, but it's really kind of cool where she's trying to kind of combine, um, comedians that she's known over the years, professional comics or whatever. Um, with um, like organizers and politicians, stuff like that, who are kind of coming up to hopefully help them kind of get their message out there a little better. What could they be saying? How could they be more truthful? Because she was like, she's worked with comedians for so long. She's like, there's nobody that like just gets up there and says exactly what they're fucking thinking the way you guys do. And I think if we could mm -hmm. teach people who are maybe, you know, kind of uh, you know, on local levels of politics to like, you know, boost up their speeches and maybe like get get their message out there a little better so that'd be interesting yeah that is interesting that is interesting um, i just think we need more like working class people to run but i do yeah. think comedy is good for changing people's minds like people like political comedy it turns out i have a bunch of friends who have just like skyrocketed their careers recently oh, yeah. political comedy Absolutely. I find it kind of funny too, because sometimes I'll post something that's overtly political or whatever it is. And then like, if I don't do it, con like you get those fans that are like, really want you to do the same shit. It's yeah. like TikTok. It's like you get a certain amount of people. Uh -huh. You know, I think the first thing I posted on TikTok, that got like a million views was something about Trump. And then everyone was like, we are totally here for that. And I did like a few more of that. And then I just posted something like, really random and innocuous and they were like we are not gonna fucking put up with this uh, i was like oh shit all right fuck i'm like i don't have any i'm not gonna do it 24 7 but holy crap um but it's cool so the i like that you're doing the organizing and stuff and then you're on tiktok is there do you feel like more community stuff needs to happen because i did like you know it seemed like even when bernie was out there he was just going out among people and even talking uh, to you know opposing networks and that kind of stuff. Um, and I know you're on the Young Turks and you're also doing your own TikTok thing. What is the most useful form that you find? I mean, like, because I think people getting together is probably the best thing, but we don't have a lot of town halls. We don't have a lot of community centers anymore. There's not one place where people congregate and you've got all these factions of like Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. Like, is there, is it hard managing all that? Do you find one to be the best outlet for you? That's interesting. That was a lot of questions, John. Uh, I, I tend to, yeah. I you know what? I'm going to take I'll, a break. You just I'm going to take the first part and then I'll take sure. the second part. The first part about do I think that we need more, you know, community to get mm. meaningful change? Yeah. Right? Obviously. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, there is a big problem with community organizing because where I was working before the Young Turks, uh, I was working for like the national head of a network of community organizing nonprofits. So we had like, I'm gonna get this wrong, 44 across the country wow. doing amazing work, tenant organizing for better housing, uh, ending vaccine apartheid, all of these really interesting issues at the national level, but at the local level, people were just doing the work that they felt was most important to their communities. Right. So if you knock doors and you're like, what do you guys care about? And they're like, well, there's always grocery carts in our neighborhood. And everyone keeps saying it. But you're like, there is a slumlord that has destroyed this neighborhood that no one has brought up. Right. And that's what you know you, know, you want to tackle. But everyone cares about these shopping carts. They will not shut up about it. No one's brought up the slumlord. Guess what you've got to do? You've got to get everybody in a room, say, we're going to figure out what we're going to do about these shopping carts. And you, <laughs> you say, all right, next Saturday, we're all meeting here at 8 a.m., and we're going to push all of the shopping carts 
back to the grocery store. This is a real story. They did this, I'm pretty sure, in Chicago. And uh, they push all the shopping carts there. My my friends who are older than me, like my mentors for organizing, love telling this story because it's ridiculous. Like an <laughs> army of people pushing shopping carts through the streets of Chicago. And they got their message across and they put up little, you know, stakes around the parking lot so the, the carts mm -hmm. couldn't get out. But then everyone realized when we all come together, we have power and we can make change. Wow. And then you get everyone in the room, you know, like, we're going to do something about this slumlord. What do you guys think? Then they believe they can. Mm -hmm. And then you can organize, you know, for bigger issues. But you've got to meet people where they're at. And community organizing is the key to change. The problem we have now, people don't have a lot of time. They're working crazy hours and cannot pay their bills. So how do we fund it? How do we pay people to be dedicated to this work? Right. Unfortunately, and this is a story I'm working on, so I'm not going to share the full details. Uh, but I will say this, there are so many nonprofits around the country that have been started because community organizers needed to legitimize so that they could get more funding to expand their work. Mm -hmm. Then you have places, all right, I'm, I'm just going to use names, Kroger, Kroger supermarkets <laughs> paid this grassroots organization to push a ballot initiative so that grocery stores could sell alcohol. Oh, wow. And, you know, my friend who was organizing there, Camus, quit. He was like, we're, we're not doing this. This is going to kill the small businesses in this area. People are going to be out of jobs. This is their yeah. whole livelihood is, is their family's small business. Uh, it's not worth the funding we get from them to push a corporate agenda. But this is happening all across the country where progressive nonprofits and community organizing nonprofits are being co-opted by corporations uh, who are infiltrating them. Hmm. That's fucking wild. Also, <laughs> I love the shopping cart thing. I just wish we could figure out a way to get like the entire country on board like can we just scatter shopping carts across the u.s and then convince everybody i mean i don't know like how do you get it a lot of it seems hopeless and kind of futile to me like because i used to have jobs where you know i work um i, I worked part-time at a library for a while i don't know why i said that like i wasn't proud like shameful like i was like oh god i did you know i can believe it but i did i worked part-time at a library um and uh i was 22 or whatever when i was starting there so i uh I was always that guy who was like, no, we can, we don't need to, you know, do this. And we would have these meetings all the time and they just considered me a problem. But I would always be like, yeah, you guys don't have to put up with this shit. Like they need you, you know, because like the only time I've ever had a job remind me of uh, how lucky I am to have that job is when they're about to fuck me. Mm. And like, that's every time is like, you know, you are really lucky to be, to have a, And I'm like, oh, you're about to do something terrible to us um you know and then but people don't realize that if they just kind of like get together and and they can change a lot of different shit mm -hmm. but you know it seems um sorry i'm not trying to go into a hopeless train here but like i'm just literally thinking about that we have to vote pretty soon and i'm like exhausted by it already i shouldn't be i know i'm going to but it is one of those things where i'm like it is fucking exhausting because like just just the roe versus wade stuff i mean that must obviously that drives you crazy i've seen you talk about it before too but it's like if you're aware which is a burden i think you just know how much time and and, and the democrats had to like really like lock it in and the fact that they didn't just makes you feel like what is the fucking point and yeah I, now we're getting into the good stuff yeah yeah um, we're getting into the good stuff because you first talked about your workplace and mm -hmm. that's really uh, where all of my hope is coming from, is labor organizing. Uh, I've said for a long time, our movement will never win unless it's a popular movement of workers. 
And I've been the most annoying person every place I've worked that's been trying to do good organizing because a lot of these groups, and I've told them this to their face, they're run by people who have no idea what struggle is like. Mm -hmm. uh, and as someone who grew up in a family that struggles, when I see their website and they're using language that my parents wouldn't be like, Jessica, what does that mean? How the fuck are we going to reach people and build a popular movement? Right. You guys are insane. You're mm -hmm. insane. And so the way we reach people is in the workplace. It's, it's our last option, to be entirely honest, but it's our best option. Because when we talk to people about what they're earning, uh, are, are you paying your bills? People are ready. No, they're not doing well. Corporations have gotten so greedy and working conditions are so terrible in this country that even though a lot of the time people have a home, the TV's on, barely. It's mm. barely for most people and they feel that and they're ready. Uh, they don't have much to lose at this point. And so even the prospect of getting fired, I mean, if you talk to someone and you're like, listen, we're a community, we take care of each other. If you lose your job, you can sleep on my couch. That's the kind of solidarity we need among workers all across the country. Right. And seeing the movements of worker-led unions is exactly what needs to be happening right now if we are to ever fix this country from descending into an entire authoritarian fascist police state, which arguably it has already been for quite some time. Right. Things are getting even worse. Like we're already a failed state. Can we fix this thing before we descend into just like mass violence, basically? And so labor organizing is the answer because when we get to the point where so many workers are in unions and we're seeing unionization on the rise tremendously in this country, workers can then collectively withhold their labor and make demands, big demands, like, mm -hmm. hey, you need to reinstate our reproductive rights. You need to right. allocate funds to address climate change because our planet is dying. And guess what? There's a general strike. No one's showing up to work. We're shutting down the economy that you profit off of tremendously every day. Uh, and so when we get to that point, which there's really good organizing moving towards that for 2024, uh, I'm not thinking about elections when I think of 2024. I'm thinking about the general strike. Nice. Oh, dude, yeah. if there was one, I, I'm stunned that there are more, more people like I really wanted, I think, more to come out of the pandemic than did. Um, I know a lot of I feel like a lot of people did change their um, you know, point of view because of it. Um, just in terms of what their value is and where they wanted to be headed and what they wanted to do with their lives. Like, I know a lot of career shifts happened. Um, I know even for me, like comedy wise, like there was this shit that I won't put up with uh, anymore. And like, I was kind of happy to see a couple clubs close down because I was like, you know, because there's a lot of that thing where like, I think business owners tend to believe that they are um, the end all be all. And they're not just some guy who got collateral and rented a space, you know, and then, uh, that like they, I feel like they, they act like they built it brick by fucking brick. And then, so I kind of liked, I know this is shitty, but I did kind of like that feeling of like, yeah, that's what happens. You don't have a comedy club without the workers or without the comedians there or without people to, to make your thing a thing. It's not a restaurant. If you don't have people serving you food, if it's not, you know, if you don't have a chef in the back, like that is just an empty fucking building that you happen to convince somebody that you deserve money to buy. Um, and, uh, but like even the, you know, I don't know. I just, I, hoping people get together and start demanding better, better quality work, better quality pay. Um, and I don't know if it's going to be, cause you ever feel like stuff like that happens and then you're just waiting for the apparatus to catch up because it's like, even with the BLM marches and stuff like that, it was, it took everybody by surprise. No one knew it was going to be that huge. And in the beginning it was like, 
you know, they didn't know how to handle it or cover it. But then it's like, you know, give them if you don't get everything done, you need to get done within a certain time frame. To me, it feels like I could have the wrong perception. Then the media and everybody else kind of figures out how to handle it and how to spin it and how to rework it and what to show and what not to show. So do you think the window of opportunity is getting smaller to really get stuff like that done? Or uh, do we always have to be a step ahead of, you know, the apparatus that's already in place? No. Yeah. With the, B the BLM movement, um, there was nothing like the energy in the streets that summer. Right. Um, and I remember the police started just getting less afraid to gas us. They knew that they weren't going to be held accountable. And it was like, at first, there had to be some escalation for, for them to, you know, throw out the, the gas. And at first it was smoke, right? And we thought it was tear gas and it wasn't. But then they were, they actually started gassing people. They started kettling people and it wasn't getting covered. Right. Uh and then a few months later, groups like Amnesty International were covering what had happened during the BLM protests and calling out the United States, you know, police forces for committing war crimes against their citizens. Right. And the police are now settling expensive lawsuits that our taxpayer dollars are paying uh, on their behalf for their terrible behavior. And it's just like people realize that their actions would be met with violence. And so do I think they will meet a general strike with police violence? They've done it before. Mm -hmm. uh, when we think about Harlan County, when we think about past labor movements and strikes getting violent, we know the government's not afraid to protect capital with violence. And right. so am I afraid about where this is going? Yeah, of course, but we have to do it anyway. Right. Uh, and then I think about, how many people's families will be participating in the general strike who are in law enforcement? Uh, you know, one in every 100 employees in the United States is an Amazon worker. Mm -hmm. So seeing the ALU leading the labor movement and thinking about, you know, will law enforcement turn on their family members when they know they're participating in the general strike? Like we've really got to build to the point where the movement is so popular and we've got so many people with us that everybody knows somebody and yeah. that's really the direction it's headed so i'm extremely hopeful like i don't think we've ever seen anything like this and it's just time because i don't know i don't want to be like the read theory person but lenin <laughs> lenin theorized that when there's the, the culture is ready for right, revolution, right. then we can have one mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> no, I hear you. important sentiment right you can't force it upon people who aren't ready and i think people are ready and the cultural shift i would point to is people hate rich people now yeah it is it is not cool to have grown up with money it's like right. you everything handed to you we no longer respect elites we hate you there's popular resentment there mm -hmm. that tells me people are ready wow you just bumped me up man i i uh i uh i was a little down and now i just feel like i'm picked up um that's a community organizer in you though right like like I, li job, I literally man. came out with, yeah i like came out with some <laughs> negative shit and you're like no 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 let me just redirect you here <laughs> uh, <laughs> so now how did you get started with all this to begin with anyway because i don't know were you like mm. did you have something else you wanted to be when you were younger because i'm always curious about what people like thought they were going to be and then how they wound up where they are now yeah i wanted to do music man i love the blues oh, uh, nice what do you play i play guitar uh, cool. 
Yep. Delta and Chicago blues are like my thing now. But uh, growing up, I had the little acoustic guitar, started playing when I was 12. My uncle plays by ear and he got me my first guitar and he would like teach me stuff and I would That's like awesome. pick it up. And then I started not going to class and just like not doing my homework and hanging out and learning guitar and learning music. And my mom was like, she pulled me out of lessons. She was like, oh. wow we're not doing this. Like you have to graduate from high school. Right. And I was like, I don't, I don't think I do because I'm not going to college. So it's fine. <laughs> uh, and so I went to trade school and that, you know, kept me busy. And I was doing like agricultural science and <laughs> just hanging out with the animals and mm -hmm. learning about all that. Stuff. Agricultural science. I got you. I see yeah. what you're putting down. Yeah. And then I just didn't tell them when I wasn't going to class and not doing my homework. Like, and then I was failing classes and they'd get my report card and be like, why didn't you, why'd you fail gym class? And I was like, I didn't want to go. I just like went to the trade school building and hung out in there for a while. Nice. Bad kid, really bad kid. But I was like, I'm going to do agriculture, I guess. Like I'm going to, you know, be a marine biologist. I love animals. I'm going to mm -hmm. work with animals because what the hell else am I going to do? Right. <laughs> and then I got involved with like public speaking. Mm -hmm. because, you know, my teacher pushed me to. And I was like, "There's this is not for me. But then I you remember what the first thing you talked about, though, publicly was. Did, did he tell you what to do? Uh, no. So it's extemporaneous public speaking. Oh. You get your topic before 30 minutes before you bring your little books, your little agri-science textbooks, and you've got your FFA uniform on. I'm in my like corduroy blue with like a corn emblem right here. Right. Napoleon Dynamite wore this for the milk tasting thing. So you have the visual. <laughs> Uh, that was me. And I, I pick a top. I don't remember what the topic was, but I always found a way to just like rage against corporate agriculture. Nice. I was like, they're destroying everything. Right. Uh, once I found out about corporate ag, I was just angry. And wow. every speech I gave was just like hammering on how like everything comes back to this, which is like the baby anti-capitalist in me slowly figuring out what's wrong with the world. But that was like my gateway into Oh, politics, standing up to power. Wow. Was that. And then from then on, I was like, okay, great. But it's all rooted in, I guess you could say, I couldn't do the one thing I wanted to do, uh, which was play music because mm -hmm. the world's fucked up. Dude, so, yes. So Absolutely. How fucked is that? Yeah. You still talk to that professor? Like, have you told him like, hey, you know, you started me on this path? Mm, no. No. Oh. Wow. Uh, she was, you know, okay. She had an agenda. Oh, okay. It was like, she had to get the kids to do career development events. Mm -hmm. And I was very uninterested in all of them. Gotcha. And she was like, well, you could do this one because it required no preparation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like you just show up and they give you the topic and you do the thing. I was like, great. I don't have to stay after school for many hours learning the different parts of a tractor or like they had this other one like veterinary technology where you have to like learn all these different things i was like i'm not doing that right um, <laughs> and nice. so that's why i chose this one was okay. was the easiest i was also smoking a ton of weed in high school uh that was like my priority uh <laughs> just like such oh. a bad student uh i got my shit together for college though i was like oh this is my shot actually sure but, uh, yeah no oh. i haven't haven't spoken to miss kroll oh, okay oh shout out to miss kroll uh, <laughs> what up yeah. um do you remember what your first like um 
I don't know, I want to say like major role in what you do now kind of was that came to be like, did, did you have a point in time where you felt like, okay, I've got it. I got my shit together. I know exactly what I'm talking about. I know exactly what I want to be doing. Was there like an aha moment for you? No, I still don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> Every day I'm like, what are we doing today? It's cool. After uh, this, you're going to start playing the blues again. Fuck the young Turks and, uh, and everything else. You're just going to go, you know, <laughs> reach people through music. The blues keeps me sane. I, yeah, it's funny you mentioned during the pandemic, people like went back to doing the things they want to do. I did start taking blues lessons with my guitar teacher who is now on tour and like too busy, for shit. Me, which is good for him. His band's doing so well. It's a blues band that like learned the music from the original Delta players of the blues. You know, they're not wow. like white guys who listen to Clapton and they're like, this sounds cool. Let's recreate it. Like they actually studied like R.L. Burnside and Money Waters and all of those dudes. And now they make their own music and it's quite good. Um, so good for Pat, but I would like to, now I'm taking lessons with Robin Henkel, who's like a Delta blues player that played with Dr. John and like, nice. and now I'm getting more into the Delta stuff instead of the electric blues. So yeah, blues is happening. Blues is happening, but it's the stuff that keeps me sane and like fuels me. I feel like I don't know when it connected for me that I was like, I have a purpose and like, I'm going to fight this thing. It was just, there's no other option. Like this is wow. just what it is. Um, I Did guess you... stuff clicked for me. I don't know when maybe <laughs> in, in grad school at some point uh, for a long time, I just thought I was kind of stupid. I was like, well, someone else has run the calculations and they figured out why we can't have nice things. And then <laughs> I was in, <laughs> graduate school at Brown University with the people who are supposed to, you know, explain those calculations. Sure. And I remember sitting in class uh, with John Friedman, who was an economist with the Obama administration. Yeah. Holy shit. And he's calculating out uh, like taxes, like, all right, if we have this kind of a tax, like with this policy and this is your population, we're estimating revenue, et cetera. And he made an error and no one said anything. And I was like, Excuse me, like <laughs> you have to multiply that number by the population of people in the state of Rhode Island, which is this number to get this figure. And that's the answer. And the whole class just was like, oh. <laughs> to John Friedman. And John's like, well, like technically this is still the right answer. And he's back, like trying to defend himself. Mm -hmm. And the teaching assistant looks at the co-professor, Emily Oster, who's a brilliant economist. And she just goes, John, no, of course we have to apply by the population. And then she turns to the teaching assistant. She's like, you need to update the answer key for this problem set. Jessica's right. Wow. And then Emily Oster got me a job. And I was like, if I can prove John Friedman wrong, <laughs> I was like, these guys, uh, like I just assumed that the people in the positions of power were well-deserved and so much smarter than us. Right. Then I find out John Friedman's dad and his dad also went to Harvard as economists and he didn't mm -hmm. have high SAT scores and he just kind right. of got in because his parents got in. And I was like, these people don't actually have the answers. And so Emily Oster got me a job uh, after that. Wow. <laughs> um, and so then I started working in policy labs with these people who also didn't have the fucking answers. Like they think <laughs> these randomized control trials where you give kids gift cards are going to solve the problem of low-income people not going to college. And I was like, oh, word. Like, mm -hmm we have to stand up to power if we're going to actually change this country. Yep. And the more I learned about the monetary system and how the economy works, the more I realized it's just by design. Like there are not good reasons for why people don't have what they need to survive. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a systemic problem. And so it clicked in graduate school. 
And uh, I just started organizing right away from there. Like, how do we spread this message within the graduate school? We did like a big socialism versus capitalism debate. And then I was like, well, I guess I'm going back to organizing after graduate school. <laughs> I'm in all this debt now because no one wants to make good policy, actually. Yeah. And so that's what I did. Just started working for the Bernie campaign. But yeah, it really clicked in graduate school. I had really understood like who I was and what I wanted to do then. And that there's no good reason for why things are the way they are, actually. Do you think, I mean, I don't know. This is probably like a weird question. Do you think Bernie's going to run again? <sighs> okay. I really hope Joe Biden does not run. Ditto. Um, what if I was like, what? <laughs> they just left. <laughs> I, I do. Mm. Uh, good. And I have some reasons for why I do, you know, okay. uh, but we all saw the news where that memo, uh, was it a memo? Or I think it was. Yeah. Memo w came out that like Bernie was considering running. Yep. Uh, if Joe Biden did not run and right. I think he should. And I think the argument that he is too old is absurd because it we is. have no one else who is as popular as he is. Mm -hmm. He would have won in 2020. The Absolutely. Democratic Party organized against him so that he would lose. Yep. And people don't understand that what goes on in primaries is not protected by election laws. Mm -hmm. So what happened in the Iowa caucus, seeing that firsthand uh, affirmed my earlier sentiment that electoral politics is not worth our time. But because it was <laughs> Bernie Sanders, I was like, all right, I'll be I'll be an electoral organizer. Yeah. Uh, but. Damn. So they had this app where you report numbers. Let's back up a little bit. Okay. Caucusing. You're not casting a ballot, first of all. They decide who becomes the president by having people go to gyms and cafeterias and high schools and, you know, community buildings across the state. And it's like, get in that corner if you like Elizabeth Warren, that corner for Kamala Harris, that corner for Joe Biden. And a motherfucker with a clipboard and a pen is like, this many people here, this many people here, this many people here. And then they call somebody else and they're like, this is how many people we had. <laughs> and then everybody goes home. Nobody's counting themselves. Nobody's right. checking, making sure they're reporting the right numbers. This time around, the Bernie campaign knew the bullshit from 2016. So we trained everybody up to understand the caucus process and to be counting and reporting numbers up to our higher managers. And that's precisely what happened. Wow. And we caught so many errors. I was sitting in Des Moines, Iowa after getting calls from everybody in my region. I had a region of like 16 counties that I was in charge of. Everyone's calling me like, just this happened. And so-and-so said that they gave one extra delegate to people to judge. And I'm like, okay, relax, slow down. Like, right, let me write everything down. We're gonna report this. Like, thank you for calling. If anyone else has anything, let me know. And they're like, what do I do? Like, I need to go on the news. And I'm like, this has, <laughs> happened. This has happened in every county. Like, right. Everybody cannot go on the news. <laughs> and so we run this hotline where we have all of these flip phones that are connected mm -hmm. to like the same number. And they're just ringing off the hook. We're like, hello, like this is, you know, the caucus reporting hotline. I don't even remember what we called it. We're in this room for hours taking down discrepancies in what the final tally was and how many delegates they gave to Pete and how many they gave to Bernie. Oh, my God. Uh, and the thing is, is you can't sue for this because right. who becomes the nominee is party business. It's not mm -hmm. a proper election. And 
the party, if they pick a winner and they decide that these are the numbers, guess what? That's what goes. Right. And so crazy. Then you have uh, Bernie winning Nevada, winning New Hampshire. And we go into Super Tuesday with all this momentum. And then Obama with the cell phones like, hey, everybody. <laughs> I know. Can drop you... out and endorse Joe Biden. That was the Democratic Party picking the nominee for the people. Yep, absolutely. Um, but I took screenshots of stuff that uh, blew me away. I remember one in particular. It was CNN. And I don't remember the anchor. Um, but uh, basically on the crawl on the bottom, it said COVID-19 or Bernie Sanders can either be stopped. And it was when he was like in the lead. Then I was like, are you like, how could you tell me that they're not leaning against him when they're like putting those two things side by side for old people to absorb as that's as if they're both threats that need to be squashed. It's insane. Right. Yeah. And like talked about him like he was terrible for the. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like what they did with Klobuchar when they were somebody said this too. And I think I screwed. I'm like nuts. I like screen record shit and save it as if I'm going. But I do kind of like sometimes I'll talk to somebody. I'm like, wait a minute. I think I have that somewhere. Um, where it was, uh, Bernie was in the lead and Klobuchar came in third and somebody on MSNBC said, well, um, you know, I, you can consider third, the new first. Yeah. And I was just like, what the fuck did she just say? Like, it was insane. Yeah. That campaign took years off of my life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was brutal, man. It was brutal to watch that kind of shit. And especially with like trying to explain, I'm not good at explaining it to like, you know, sometimes I'll stay with people like friends or whatever and have the time. But literally one of my friends was like, I kind of like Elizabeth Warren. And I was like, I get it. I'm like, but you know, why in particular? And she's like, well, um, you know, first of all, she's wearing purple. And I was like, I'm going to hang up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, I need a break. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go. But so much of that in Iowa. That's Iowa. They love when the candidates come and oh, wow, she seems really nice and she's so friendly. And it's like, mm -hmm. what is she going to do to make your life materially better and right. strengthen our democracy? Like, not a concern. She came to my local church and mm. ate corn and cinnamon rolls with the people yeah. of Iowa. It's like, that's, and they're like, that's my person. And then they stand in that corner of the gym. And that is not a good way to pick the president. Exactly. And the other thing, too, is like, you know, what's weird is that people don't seem to have a higher level of expectation for the people they're electing to do shit for them because they, right. they humanize them to the point where they're basically like, you know, like with what Elizabeth Warren did when she immediately backed off on health care as she was getting closer, when she thought she could have like maybe cinched the deal. She completely did that fucking 180. And I was like, okay, because I was saying shit like that was going to happen from the get-go. I didn't really trust her that much. I liked her with some things, but I was like, I'm getting a bad feeling. Bernie's still the dude. Um, and then she did that. And then people who were backing her were like, we all have had to make tough decisions. And I'm like, no, 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 no. She's supposed to be a, like, I'm not talking about the decisions and sacrifices you've had to make as a worker, a parent, you know, uh, whatever the hell it is you do. I'm talking about like, we need to have them up here and hold them to higher standards and not go, I would have had, I've had to make some shitty. And it's like, no, 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 no. Stop that. Like they, they dehuman, they humanize them way too much. Absolutely. The idea that we need to waver on policy positions. Yeah. Because we are getting closer to power. You never stood for anything. Like, like her entire thing was, she just wanted to be president and she right. was willing to do what it took to get there. 
And I don't think she actually supports the progressive values that she ran on, obviously, because as soon as she got close, she started backing off on them. She was pulling support away from Bernie Sanders. Then the whole thing with Bernie said that I could never win because I'm a woman. Right, she was an op for the Democratic Party within the primary. And right. anyone who still supports her, who considers themselves a member of the left, I'm sorry, you are a liberal or confused. Uh, <laughs> I just, I can't deal with it. Because when you have family members who are, like, my uncle died because he was released from prison early without resources and was living as a homeless man and had no way to contact us because he has mental health problems and was struck by a car and died. They don't even oh investigate God. when stuff like that happens. And so when I have people that I talk to that say, like, you know, I don't think we can, you know, say radical things like we have to abolish the prison system. There are a lot of people who think that's that's too radical of a position. And I hear the argument that you can't stop someone on the street and say, let's abolish the prisons. Mm-hmm. But as members of the left, we have to be very careful about communicating the issues we talk about. But that doesn't mean we give up on abolishing prisons. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so frequently it seems like we're trying to, to move towards the Overton window instead of saying, nope, this is my position and we're going to find a way to communicate it so that people understand it. Right. I and agree. You have to care more about the outcome than you care about your own personal power and personal reputation to do that. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. It's the same thing with the cops and, and, you know, like the whole abolish police thing or whatever. Um, yeah. you know, I mean, it's insane how much is done just based on feeling when it comes to people, because you can list stats all day long about how most cops only solve like 2% of like, you know, and break everything down for people. But if they, the, the idea is that they feel safe. They don't fucking care if they're actually safe. That's so true. It's so true because Minneapolis was the one place where coming out of, you know, George Floyd and the uprising in the summer, they had a ballot initiative where mm-hmm. they were voting on defunding the police. And uh, Take Action Minnesota was our member org in that state, the community organizing group. And we worked closely with them. And it was crazy because I was running our data infrastructure because you know, we couldn't be there in person. There was the pandemic. We couldn't knock doors. So now we've got to find people, you know, from the list of voters in the mm-hmm. voter file. And with the data we have about those people, we have to figure out who we need to persuade in order to win. And so my job is to like process all of that data and get us good lists, um, which was a hell of a job. But more importantly, those phone calls we had, when we would call people, we would ask them, when something has something ever happened where like you felt unsafe and you're so right that it's about safety mm-hmm. and they would be like, you know, yeah, like I have. And it's like, did you call the police when that happened? And so often people say no. Right. Why not? It's like, oh, well, I just like would be afraid about like what would happen. It's like, okay, so do the police make you feel more safe? Like, what do you think needs to happen in our communities for us to actually feel safe if we don't feel safe from calling the police? Right. And usually they say something along the lines of, like, we've got to take better care of each other. We need better resources. Like, we need some alternative. And that's when you say, like, what do you think about taking some of the resources that go to the police and putting it towards that? Uh, and, you know, it's, it's a hard conversation, but we were really persuading people at a, a rapid rate. 
but we couldn't persuade people faster than the right could spread propaganda, unfortunately, and we didn't win on that ballot initiative. But we learned that when you have the conversations, you can change people's minds. We just needed more time. Mm. Uh, and it's it's really scary how they framed this as like black communities will be hurt the most if we defund the police. It's right. like you're fucking insane. Yeah. Uh, and it worked, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Um it, it was an effective message. It was like, think about your kids, think about your wife, like hear all these crazy crime stats. There's all these crazy criminals on the loose who want to hurt you, you know? Yep. It's crazy how most people's like police stories are like, yeah, the cops c fucked with me. It's not yeah. like this bad thing happened and they saved me. When will <laughs> when will you ever hear that? Like the, the only time actually all right the second time i was ever in a bad situation where it was like cop level like mm -hmm. someone we need help uh like we cannot handle this ourselves was like i just immediately afterwards they couldn't help and i was like well i'm as safe as i make myself i need a gun and that's the state of our country right uh, and within that week i was firing a gun in the range it's wow. like I had signed up for, you know, the classes or whatever. Uh, and now, you know, I'm a gun user. See, now because of that and the cowboy hat, people are going to call you a Republican for sure. You're not, you're going to have a hard time convincing them otherwise. Yeah. I mean, I think most people on the left don't have a choice, but to have a gun. Um, yeah. I mean, I've experienced firsthand the type of stuff people deal with for their political views. Like mm -hmm. people want to hurt you. Uh, oh, absolutely. Uh, people are fucking crazy. People are so crazy. People are so crazy. Yeah. I'm, I've never told this story publicly before, but Ooh. now it's fine. Uh, but my apartment in Boston, I was living in Boston because during graduate school, I was like, oh, I would like to come back and live in this city. There's so mm -hmm. much history here. I know people here. My mentor, Stephen Kinzer, lives in Boston. I was so excited. Uh, and it was good for a while. And then I started getting these weird messages from someone with a Proton email address, which is untrackable. Oh God. Like, we're gonna come find you. Right. We're, we're coming, we're hacking all of your information, we're following you, all of this stuff, really creepy. And so my dumbass is like, let's make a joke of this. Let's, <laughs> this is, they're trying to extort me. They're asking for money. They're like, if you give us money, we won't sell your information to the people who want it. Right. And I'm like, all right, this is just nobody. Like, they're not capable. They just want to scare me into giving them money. And so I make a video because they say, we're going to release an, a video of you. And I'm like, there was no video. You know, I'm video. <laughs> so uh, I make a video of me doing the Cotton Eye Joan. Like, they want to release my most embarrassing video. Uh, so I'm just going to share it now to take back my power. And mm -hmm. it's me doing the Cotton Eye Joan. I make a TikTok. And I show the email in the TikTok, big mistake. Oh. It gets like 60,000 something views. Right. People start emailing the person and they're like, you better not fuck with her. And like, blah, blah, blah. Oh, and then shit. people who don't like me email the person as well. And they're oh, like, no. we'll pay you for whatever you have. What's your price? Wow. And big mistake. And so around 3 a.m., email hacked. I go to check my GCAL for my schedule the next mm -hmm. day and it won't open. It's like, you're logged out. And I'm like, oh, that's weird. Go to sign back in, password doesn't work. I forget my password all the time, think nothing of it. Hit two factor, just send me a text, let's reset this. Right. And the last you know, few numbers it shows 
were not my cell phone number. Oh, and I was like, oh no, <laughs> they got in. Right. And they sure did. And they set up mail forwarding. My last email was an invoice with my address. Oh my God. In a few weeks, the apartment gets broken into twice. Once while I'm not there, once while I was asleep in another room that was locked. They didn't take anything. They, Holy well, shit. Actually, they did take stuff the first time. Uh, they cleaned out an underwear drawer, uh, which is really <laughs> gross. And yeah. I came back home and it was empty. And I was like, maybe I packed it when I visited my, <laughs> my parents. And like stuff looked weird in the apartment. I was like, things look off. And then mm -hmm. I knew it was missing. And psychologically, when that happens, apparently you just like denial is a common thing where wow. you like rationalize it. Like, oh, yeah. there's a perfectly reasonable explanation for this. No one would do this to me. You're like, I flipped that chair over. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then the second time, so I go and stay with my parents for a while. And then I'm like, you know what? It's my apartment. I'm going to get a gun. I'm going to go back and wow. live there because fuck this person. Badass. And my landlord's like, you should get dogs. I'm like, I live in a one bedroom apartment building and I'm getting dogs. And uh, that was my landlord's brilliant, brilliant solution. Mm -hmm. And so second time I hear a big bang and I'm like, nah, it's fine. Go back to sleep. Uh, next morning. Oh, next morning, 5 a.m. I hear like, it sounds like something's in the apartment. And I'm like, it's the neighbors. The walls are thin. Go back to sleep. I'm in the one bedroom. My room's locked. When I wake up, <laughs> The blinds are out, stuck in the plant. The oh, rain is slashed. The windows open. My books that were on the windowsill are knocked over. My keys are on the floor by the window, which is weird because why wouldn't you just take them? Right. I think it was someone who just wanted to scare me and like send yeah. a message. And so I got the fuck up out of Boston after that. And the police came. Shit. Police came and they're like, "So who do you think it is?" And I'm like, <laughs> "I explain." And they're like, "Well, why would you be a target?" It's like. Well, I'm a very vocal person online and my yeah. political views are probably really different from yours. So I can see how this is going to go for me. Um, right. You know, so I just had to move out. I had to pay people to take the furniture out, uh, keep paying my rent when I wasn't there because the landlord wouldn't break the lease and threaten to sue. Oh, my um, God. And I was like, this is going to be a bad situation. Like, you're going to have a lawsuit if I try right. and stay there. Like, this is clearly bad for me. I asked like, you who you think it is. You're like, isn't that your fucking job? Holy shit. What yeah. am I to give you leads? And they're like, we can't track an email address like that. Like you need a special warrant. And I'm like, oh my God. Someone broke in my house. <laughs> that is, that's such bullshit. Like right. I got, I, mine was way, I got a Proton email during the pandemic um, <laughs> for um, all my anti-cop shit. And it was this person who wrote my agent and my manager they both got these emails and it was this long whole thing about how um, they like screenshot the stuff I'd said about cops. And they were yeah. like, his job is to be funny. And, and these aren't funny. These are personal attacks against the police. And um, we're, we, we want you to drop your client. And if you don't um, action will be taken further action will be taken, whatever the fuck that means. Um, and then they were like, we've also, we will also be contacting comedy clubs across the country to tell them not to get booked. And I'm like, Oh no, don't take the chuckle hut in Idaho away from it. Like, you know what I mean? Like what the fuck? Like, like that's, so it was, and it was like, um, I can't remember how they signed it, but I'll send you the screenshot of what it was. It made me laugh hysterically. And my agent called me and they were like, so we're dropping you. Uh, she's like, fuck you. No, they were, they didn't actually do it, but she was like, that's all. She's like, I never get this kind of stuff. Cause all her other clients are like actors and shit who like kind of just don't 
say anything unless they're being told what to say. So she's like, this is kind of an exciting day for me. <laughs> she's like, I've never had to deal with it. But I didn't even know what Proton emails were because I was like, yeah, I was like, what? what is that? And I'm like, oh, you could just fucking buy an email address that's untraceable. That's sketch as fuck. Yeah. 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 That Crazy. Crazy. Yeah, that stuff drives me nuts. Um, so I've kept you for over an hour and I promise yeah. you I get out of here in an hour. So I appreciate you staying for an extra 20. I got to ask you the same three questions that I ask every guest that comes on the show. Okay. They're staples. So, uh, first one's a little bit of a softball one. If you can go back in time and talk to your younger self, what piece of advice would you give yourself to help you today? Oh, nothing. She does not listen. There's nothing <laughs> we could say to go through to her. Nothing. Oh, that's the perfect it. answer. I would just be like, Hey, I like your outfit today. You know? Yeah. Oh, that's very sweet. Or some happiness because I she wouldn't listen. She's got to figure it out for herself. Positive affirmation. She probably wouldn't even recognize. You'd be like, "Wow, this uh, uh, attractive older woman told me she liked my dress." She'd be like seven. Oh, yeah. Would you go back? What what age would you go back to talk to yourself? Hmm. I don't know. I never asked anybody that before, but I feel like this is a. Yeah, you know, middle school is uh, rough for me. Let's do middle school. All right, middle school is nice. That's a good. All right. Have a good day, kid. That's all. Have a good day, kid. <laughs> I just imagine you walking down the hallway saying it like a little piece, of, like a sign. Well, bump, like, who was like, that? Yeah. <laughs> who was that mystery lady? She was cool. Yeah. Um, no point in trying to get through to her. Like, invest in TikTok. She's like, what? <laughs> um, buy Bitcoin. Buy, oh, dude. I know. <laughs> I, I could. I remember, I remember when Bitcoin came out and I thought it was just for people who didn't shower and played video games. I was like, like I play video games, but like, yeah, but that's exactly what it was like. You know, they were like, oh, do you want Bitcoin? I was like, no, I'm not that God. I'm like, I'm still having sex. I'm not that much of a fucking loser. Like, um, but then now and jokes on me um, and everyone else, because, you know, yeah, money. Um, But uh, yeah, I know you're like, you don't need it. Um, That's why I can't get a haircut. Um, but, uh, yeah. So second question is what had to end in your life, good or bad that led you to where you are today? Wow. There's so yeah. many things. I think I had to stop living for other people. That's a very real one. I spent a lot of my life like, this is what people expect me to do. This is what is good to do. Mm. Uh, you know? The, yeah. the type of thing of like, get the job and like, get the, do the stuff. And uh, when I was in graduate school, I remember like going to an interview with Deloitte because that's like the big thing you do after graduate school. And I, I just know. remember thinking I would hate this, but my parents don't have enough money to retire. Like I'm the only person in my household that had a shot to make money. I have to do it uh, for my family. And I remember going for the interview and like, it went well. It was like very clear I was going to get it. And I was just like in the hotel room. And I guess I just feel like the song by John Mayer was released at midnight. And I'm sitting on the floor of my hotel room crying. Oh my <laughs> God. To John Mayer's song <laughs> about being true to yourself. Uh, great song. But, yeah, good um, song. It was more of like, I can't live this life of like being dishonest and working for a consulting firm. Wow. Uh, and as Stephanie Kelton put, Stephanie Kelton, who's a mentor to me in some ways, she says, at some point, you know too much uh, and you just can't. And uh, my parents knew too. When I told them I got the job, they were like, but you don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. 
And I was expecting like the, well, you can make so much money. So think about it. Not even that. They were like, you wouldn't be happy. They were right. like, you have to do what you think you would do to be happy. And That's really sweet. it was really sweet. Thank God I have them as parents because I'd be in the lawyer right now. <laughs> were they, I mean, you know, you said a little bit about uh, them earlier on, just in terms of like, you know, worrying about you playing the blues. Did they ever, were they supportive though, like after that? Though? I mean, obviously in that moment too, but like, did they ever encourage you to go back into music when they found out that maybe like, uh, you know, you weren't exactly happy or did they, were they happy with you doing what you're doing now? Like, how do they feel about all that? It's a good question. I should really talk to them about it. <laughs> <laughs> we actually have them in the room. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just like, they're here now. That'd be cool if I, <laughs> have that okay. ability but i don't i did have one conversation with my mother i went to therapy mm -hmm. talked to my therapist about it uh and about how it affected me as a person worked through it and she was like have you ever talked to your mom about it and i was like no i can't and she was like no you you kind of have to and i was like god <laughs> damn it and so i remember talking to my mom about it and she was like you know when i was a kid i really wanted to play piano but my piano teacher told me my hands were too small <sighs> And so we pass down the things that traumatize us onto our kids unless we heal from them. Right. And I remember thinking, I have to heal from my trauma or else I'm going to do this to everyone around me who I love. Uh, and so, you know, once you go through it and you heal and you realize why people do the way or do the things they do, you can forgive them. Yes. Because exactly what someone did to her, she did to me. So I get why she was angry and and bitter and why it affected her so much to the point that she would say it to someone else. Mm -hmm. And so we we did have a conversation about it. But um, no, they're so supportive of me playing music and doing all of the things that I'm passionate about. And they're very much advocates for like, you know, don't spend all of your time doing this one thing. Uh, like be a well-rounded human being. Don't, you know, be a robot, whatever. Uh, but they're super supportive of what I do because right. they get it. I give them a call when I was like, hey, uh, I'm going to work for Bernie Sanders. My mom was a registered Republican. She taught me to be a Republican. And then I figured it out a few years later. Uh, my dad's super progressive, always has been, but he was never around. He was always working. We were not mm -hmm. having political conversations with him. And so I was at the mercy of my mother, who's like, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, but extremely anti-racist and progressive socially. But she was like, welfare is bad. I had to work hard. So everybody has to work hard. And so when I came around and I was like, there's no reason for this, like the system's all fucked up. I'm like, mom, you worked hard your whole life. Are you doing well? She's like, no, obviously mm. I know she's not doing. Well. I'm like, we have no money. And uh, I'm like, so like, why do you think that is? Like corporations are making so much money and they keep our wages low to profit. We have a conversation. By the end of the conversation, she's like, you should work for Bernie Sanders, registered <laughs> Republican. And I'm like, you know what? All right. Hot nice. dog. Let's go work for Bernie Sanders in Iowa. But no, they're on board. Like they get it. They get why I'm in the fight and they keep me grounded every day. And when I tell them about what's going on, they're like, fuck everybody else. Jess, do what you know is right. Like, like nice. they're just fully like, let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. I got same same kind of sense of pride, though. I got my stepdad, who is a lifelong Republican. We used to have conversations politically all the time before he passed away. And he would always listen and we would argue sometimes. But, you know, he would always kind of consider what I had to say, take it back, come back. Got him to vote uh, for Obama the first time. Um, well, actually, both times. And then I think got him to vote for I got him to vote for Sanders for the primary because I was just adamant about it. I was like, you know, it's one of those things that I'm obsessive about where if I can get one person to kind of. So I'm like. 
I'll pick somebody and I'm like, documents, paperwork. Um, you know, like I'm there at breakfast, I'm there at lunch, I'm calling you later that evening. Like, and it was it was nice to kind of be able to see, you know, eye to eye on on that kind of shit um at a certain point. Cause I think the more he got to know me and like saw how hard I was working at trying to just have this career that I wanted to have and not get stuck. Cause he didn't, it, he also didn't have like an orthodox kind of, you know, upbringing. Like he went into the military and stuff, but he also didn't have like a, a classic education or anything like that either. He was self-taught, super smart, um, you know, just had this wealth of knowledge, but it was, you know, but he was just this lifelong Republican because of his father and stuff. And then, so I was like, you're doing a lot of lefty shit, by the way. I'm like, you're helping me. You know, if you ever help me out, I'm like, that's socialism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, and he'd be like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> like, I'm just saying, that's what it is. Um, and the other thing, I love your point about um, understanding people. Because the, the minute I decided, like, early on in my life, that if I just understood where somebody was coming from, I'd be less angry at them for making, like, you know, decisions I didn't agree with or, or anything like that. Like, I... I'm very much like less angry at somebody for doing something. Cause I'm just like, okay, why'd they do it? Where are they coming from? What's happened to them? What the deal is. And then also yourself too. If you can understand where you're coming from, holy shit. It's pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. A thousand percent. Yeah. yeah. Um, last question is tied into the show. It's goofy as shit. If this was a genuine dystopia more so than it is now. And you had your choice mm -hmm. between like aliens or zombies or a climate change or a comet heading toward earth, giant laser, whatever you want. But it's everybody's last day. Everybody knows it. How are you spending it? What would be your epic death? Wow. Yeah. It's uh, like, how do I want to die? Yeah. What would be what would be the last thing? Like, how do you want to go out? Basically, like, what do you want to be taken out by? Alien, zombie, late? Like, how do you want it to go down? And then what would you be doing? Mm. Oh, I imagine dystopia as, like, an authoritarian government. I don't imagine zombies and shit. Okay, okay. I I already suspect that at, at some point I'll be... I mean, my goal is to become so inconvenient that, you know, <laughs> people want to kill me. Like, that's... Like, it's already... Someone broke into my apartment, so we're, we're you know... Hopefully I can get more things done before they take me out. Uh, I'm not effective enough yet. But I, I would... Yeah, I want to be taken out. All like, right. That's how all the good people go. Yeah, right. that's true. Oh, come on. You know what? Honestly, now you're worrying me because I'm like, please don't take her seriously. <laughs> like, if you go missing I'm after not this. Like, please murder me. No, uh, no, no, I get it. No, I know. But, uh, now yeah, they're just going to take that clip of you saying that, by the way, and run with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She I'm threw her hands up on this guy's show and said, please murder me. I mean, come on. Yeah. She's kidding. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. We're going to keep going until, you know, we're a problem and the FBI cares about us. <laughs> I love that. That's fucking awesome. Yeah. Um, thank you for coming on. Please follow Dystopia Tonight on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Follow me on Instagram. Follow Jessica on um, TikTok. It's down there. K.A. Burbank is her TikTok. She's also on... Do you prefer Instagram too or no? Yeah, yeah. You want to throw... Want to say your Instagram handle? Same thing. Same thing. There you go. So there you go. So it's same thing on Instagram. Um, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. This was great. Thank you so Sweet. much for having me on, John. No, no, no problem. Thank you. And bye. Dystopia tonight.